Welcome to a single serving podcast. I'm your host, Shaney Silver, and I want to change the narrative around being single because so far it's had pretty bad PR. What if we stopped seeing single life as wrong and stopped trying so hard to fix it by finding partnership at any cost? Relationships are amazing and we deserve to have them. We just don't deserve to be miserable in the meantime. If you're ready to stop hating single life and to recognize that loving single life doesn't mean you'll be single forever, keep listening. This podcast publishes new episodes every Monday. You can find one episode per month on all your favorite free access platforms. All other weekly episodes are accessible by becoming a patron of this podcast on Patreon. You'll find the link in the show notes for this episode. By becoming a patron, you'll also get access to the Facebook group for this podcast, a supportive community space for celebrating single life, not just for dealing with it. There's so much joy, freedom, and potential in being single. My fear is that if we only ever see our singlehood as something that's wrong with us, something that has to be fixed as soon as possible by finding a partner, we'll miss out on a really important time in our lives, and we might even settle for less than what we really want. If you're sick of the shame of being single and sick of feeling helpless and unable to feel better, this is your podcast, and I'm so glad you're here. Hi, everybody, and welcome to a single serving podcast. This is your host, Shaney Silver, who is trying her best to record this introduction before the construction starts across the street. Hi, everybody. If you're wondering where all of the January episodes of this podcast are, they are waiting for you over on Patreon. So starting in January of 2021, this podcast publishes once a month to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, all of the platforms that you're used to. And then all of the other episodes for the month are still being made, they're still being published, but they live over on Patreon. So if you would like to listen to all of the episodes of a single serving podcast, go over to uh, my Patreon, which is linked in the show notes, and you can sign up to listen to absolutely all of the episodes at the $5 a month tier. And when you sign up, you will have access to all the podcast episodes I have ever published on Patreon. So in addition to all of the January episodes, you will also get access to more than a year's worth of bonus solo episodes. So that's waiting for you over there. And then also I have a $15 a month tier, which includes all of the podcast episodes and a once a month group zoom that I lead with a fantastic group of podcast listeners and patrons. And we get into the real shit of being single. We reframe real daily scenarios that single people are experiencing. And um, we work through them, we find new perspectives to view them from. And we start feeling better about being single because we're seeing things in new ways. It is it is real shit. We get into some great stuff in those discussions. And I really love them. I really love connecting with this audience in that way. So that's waiting for you over on Patreon as well. Um, but I do want to take a minute to tell you about the three January episodes that are over on Patreon if you want to listen to them because they're fantastic. So the first one is with Ashley DJ, who is a astrologer. She's actually the resident astrologer for Zora Magazine on Medium. She's fantastic. We get into some really practical uses for astrology, particularly for single people. I love this discussion so much. We're not talking horoscopes. We're talking how to leverage your own astrology, your own traits into a strategy for how you live. It was such a useful discussion for me. I hope you feel the same way. And uh, that is waiting for you over on Patreon. 
The next episode is with Shannon Abels, who is the founder of The Simply Luxurious Life. One of my patrons linked to her work in the Facebook group, and I'm really surprised that I hadn't connected with her work sooner because it speaks to so many things that I enjoy. And I had a fantastic discussion with Shannon. We talk all about the act of living luxuriously. And what we mean by luxurious is not, we're not talking money, we're talking more customizing your life to the things you love doing the things you love and enjoying the things you love. Um, And I actually have an amazing email from a listener that I'm going to read to you because I think it really articulates what Shannon was talking about uh, in a really beautiful way. So here's what my listener had to say about the episode with Shannon. She said, I wanted to send over some love and thanks for your recent episode with Shannon Abels about living a luxurious life. I've lived alone for eight years and I thought I had it sussed. I cook, clean, pay bills, and make do. But during the first UK lockdown, I decided to make my place a little nicer since I was stuck there. I bought some nice bedding, but then I felt guilty because my default setting is to save, 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 especially when the world is crumbling. But ever since your episode with Shannon, I've noticed loads of non-shopping related things I do as a disservice to myself because in my mind, it's just me. So this weekend, I cleaned my house top to bottom because I deserve a sparkling home even when I'm the only one in it. I sprung for fancier chocolate at the supermarket because I always buy the cheap crap and hate it. I baked sun-dried tomato and olive bread, which smelled amazing, and did some Marie Kondo cleaning. I've been contentedly single for over a decade, but still sometimes treat myself as less than, as if just me doesn't deserve things until I have a partner to appreciate them with me. And I'm determined to change that. So thank you for the episode and for being my weekend soundtrack. That episode from a lovely listener named Christy is articulating the point so well. It's exactly what Shannon and I were talking about. It isn't about spending a ton of money. That's not the definition of luxury. It is treating yourself with as much love and respect and level up as you would treat anybody else. It is about cleaning your home so that you enjoy being in it or, you know, hanging the art that you've been meaning to hang because you love looking at it. Um, Whatever it is, for me, it's a lot of music on in the house all day, um, a lot of incense burning in the house all day, the lighting that I choose to use in my home, things like that. Um, maybe like the throw blankets that I use, even though the cat's all over them. So that's kind of a moot point. But anyway, that email really articulates what the uh, episode with Shannon gets into. And so that's waiting for you over on Patreon as well. And then the last January episode features a woman named Kate Murphy, who is the founder of something called the Feminine Code. I'll let you listen to the episode to get more information about exactly what the Feminine Code is. But essentially, Kate works with her clients who are most often entrepreneurs or professionals who are looking to bring in more of the feminine energy into their work. I don't mean femininity. Feminine energy is something entirely different. And what we see most of the time in the professional space is more masculine energy. And so Kate works with her clients to achieve more of a balance, to connect with their feminine energy more. We had the best chat. I had so much fun talking to her and it's waiting for you over on Patreon. Um, But for today, the episode you're listening to right now features Dr. Jessica Mormon. And I found her work 
as I typically do from one of you, a Patreon patron and listener shared her work with me through another podcast called Therapy for Black Girls. And there are two episodes that feature Dr. Mormon. And I've linked to both of them in the show notes because I want you to listen to both. I was listening to them while I was cooking dinner and just like aggressively nodding along the entire time. They're such great episodes. It's such a great podcast. So give that a listen as well. So Dr. Mormon is the assistant professor of communication at Wayne State University. I should say a assistant professor of communication at Wayne State University. And uh, so her areas of expertise include media sexual socialization, single socialization. I'm so glad I don't have to say those words together very often because I can't say them. Um, Black women in media, intersectional approaches to media and communication, children in media, sleep in media, and health communication. And we had an incredible chat. I was so lucky to be able to speak with her. I'm so grateful to her for taking the time. And um, I'm so excited to share it with you. So I will stop talking and just let that interview begin. But there were just a few things that I wanted to discuss before I get into um, I get into the episode. So remember, if you want access to all episodes of a single serving podcast, they are all waiting for you over on Patreon, apart from one episode a month, which is going to still publish on the free access platforms that you're used to like Apple podcasts, and Spotify. Spotify and Stitcher, the one you're listening to right now, but the rest of the episodes for February will be over on Patreon. And I hope that you join us over there. When you do join the Patreon, you will also be given access to the new patrons only Facebook group, which is the only Facebook group now for this podcast. So you'll receive an email with information on that. And um, I think that's it. I feel like it's a lot of housekeeping and I haven't really like said hi, but hi guys. (laughs) Um, Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Everyone who has become a patron. Thank you so much. You are the reason this podcast gets to continue being made. Thank you to everyone also who has rated and reviewed this podcast or anyone who shared it with a friend. Um, all of that helps the podcast grow. And as the podcast continues to grow, um, that's a really good thing for it to keep existing. That's probably not a grammatically correct sentence, but I don't know how to say that. It's early. Um, So anyway, thank you guys so much for all of your support of this podcast. It is my absolute joy to create it for you, uh, to create content for this audience that is not a... um, it's not a dating podcast. It's not a dating advice podcast. It's not a singlehood advice podcast either. It's something that is created for this audience that has nothing to do with fixing your singlehood because in my opinion, it isn't broken and neither are you. Um, I happen to think singlehood is wonderful. And um, I hope that my work is helping this audience to not just accept singlehood because I want more than acceptance. I want love. I want us to love this single life and appreciate this single life and stop seeing it as a lesser status when compared to coupled life, because I don't see it as a lesser status. I see it as completely on par and even with those in couples. And I hope that's what I'm able to communicate to you through what I create and what I write, um, because it's very important to me that single people feel good. That matters to me a lot. So that's why I make this podcast that you're listening to right now. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy my discussion with Dr. Jessica Mormon. My guest today is Dr. Jessica Mormon, and I'm going to ask her to introduce herself to you. But first, I just want to say a huge thank you to the listener and patron who knows who she is, who sent me several podcast episodes that Dr. Mormon has been on in the past. I listened to them both. I nodded aggressively 
the whole time. And I was basically just like chopping vegetables in my kitchen, screaming at my phone. So a huge thank you to that person. And um, I'm, I'm so excited to get started. So Dr. Mormon, welcome. Uh, please let everybody know about you. What would you like an audience of single people to know as we begin our conversation? Sure. I want to first say thank you for inviting me. It was great to um, just sort of correspond with you and just get to know you a little bit better. So thank you for having me here, um, Johnny. It is my pleasure. Yeah. So my, I am an assistant professor of communication at Wayne State University, and my area of research is sexual socialization, basically the process by which we acquire our attitudes, beliefs, and approaches to sex dating and relationships. So that body of literature primarily focuses on sex, dating, and relationships, which is interesting, but misses at least half of the story of what's going on in terms of norms and values around courtship, expectations that we might hold because of how we were socialized as children around relationships and singlehood. And so my intervention into that body of literature was to assert that single status is socialized in the same way. Single status is its own kind of valid site for inquiry, meaning that it's on par with relationships, sex, or dating as something that we should be tending to. Who knew? Yeah, exactly. Who knew? Who thought? Uh, Particularly because of the ways that we have so many messages in society about single status that we see through media, you know, through our friends and families, through our dating partners, stuff like that. Um, And then finally, like one of the things that I introduced into this area of literature is the concept of strategic singlehood. So the idea that you would use single status intentionally, like you would preserve single status intentionally to achieve life goals. So for example, why would I pour all of this energy into a relationship when I need to pour this energy into myself? So that would be kind of a strategic enactment of singlehood. So that's kind of like what I do research-wise now. But before that, I worked as um, I was a sex ed teacher at one point in my career. I was a health educator at one point in my career. Um, did a bunch of kind of health and nutrition and public health intervention work at one point in my career. So. I've gotten, um, I've, I've explored health and development from a couple of different angles over, over the years. Amazing. This audience knows how much I enjoy speaking to researchers in particular, because essentially everything that I like to get mad about on the internet, you guys can prove with data. And that makes me really, really excited. It just makes me feel valid. And I know I shouldn't be seeking validation outside of myself, but I got to tell you, it feels pretty good. So I won't lie there, but I'm, I'm curious, how did you select your current uh, career path and area of research? Well, the best things happen by accident and the best things happen, at least in my career, out of spite. So I was in the midst of trying to select a dissertation topic. So this was, I finished my degree three years ago, three years ago, and as part of that process, you have to write a dissertation, obviously, which is the long, like a large book length project. So I proposed all this nonsense that really I didn't care about, but would have made, you know, quote, good research, unquote. And then finally just got fed up. And my advisor, Dr. Chris Harrison, shout out to her, who's amazing. She essentially was like, well, what do you actually care about? Like, what is something you actually want to study? Um, and at the time, and I was unmarried, I was living alone, um, and I was dating, but it was 
me and my friends were basically experiencing kind of similar things where we were getting a lot of guidance. We were, I was in my, like, I was like 30, 32 at the time, getting a lot of advice about how I need to be married and what I needed to do to get married. And here's a dating advice book about marriage. I'm doing a PhD. I don't care about dating advice. I mean, I do care about partnership, but it's like, this is the focal point. We're going to talk about how I'm unmarried. When I've had an extensive career, I've lived currently independently. I'm pursuing what is a career dream for me. And so it just ended up sort of becoming um, a larger frustration that I took up in my research. And so um, that's how I got to the topic of singlehood was through hearing people's bullshit about my own life. So... (laughs) Fantastic. We arrived in the same place in much the same way. We just ended up in different spots. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, bullshit really leads to good work. I find mm-hmm. you get mad enough at it. You do something about it, which is, which is really how I get up every morning. Um, and also just sort of like out of spite, like, why are you forcing me to have this conversation? There are so many other conversations about unmarried life to have other than who's in my sheets at night. So like, let's focus on literally anything else. Okay. Anyway, that's me being colorful, but go on. (laughs) You're in the right place. You are in the right. Welcome to a single serving podcast. Um, After listening to your appearance on therapy for black girls, which I will absolutely be linking to in the show notes. I have two of them to link to actually. I was excited to speak to you because sometimes in my line of work, it feels like I'm the only one who notices how many, uh, literally how many messages uh, that are like specifically negative, lack focused, but they're coming at single women from all angles and all of the time. And sometimes I can feel kind of isolated and thinking that I'm the only one who notices them. Um, But then I heard you and I realized it wasn't. So can you please let this audience know more about the sources of information that single black women receive? Like it's coming from everywhere. Can you, can you explain what you mean by, I've heard you speak about this before, which is why I'm asking. Yeah. And so, um, we can actually think about this while I study single black women, but I'm sure a lot of your listeners of other racial backgrounds would relate to a lot of this. And so in my work, I found that there's kind of three tiers for messages that explicitly kind of offer guidance, seek to define single life Um, level at the sociocultural. We can think of that as being culture, media, uh, policy, the norms and values that govern our society. And so as a media scholar, I'm particularly focused on things like dating advice media, on representations of single life, um, or basically any other kind of um, norm representations of relationships too, because what we find in the literature is that portrayals of single status frequently accompany or support Um, representations of relationships. So for example, it's not simply enough to say that being married is great. It's that we have to say that being single is terrible. And because of that, we need to get married. That will be great. Right. And so it's these almost like goofus and gallant like comparisons of here's the single woman who has, whose life is completely out of whack. Here comes typically a male protagonist because a lot of these norms, narratives are heteronormative. So, you know, foreclosing opportunities for Um, same-sex interaction, defining gender in these very kind of binary ways. But um, the larger point that I'm trying to make here is that frequently the discourse in culture and media is about how single women need to change, what they need to correct, the work that they have to do in order to become ready for 
a male partner who will marry them and become their husband. So that's one kind of level of this, this broader kind of cultural norms. We can also think about this happening in the interpersonal sphere. So through interactions with our families, through interactions with our friends, through interactions with even dating partners. So I'm sure that many of your listeners have had the experience of being on a date and having their whoever they're out with ask them why they're single. So why are you single? What's going on with you? And that can be a very benign question, depend on how it's phrased, or that can be a very loaded question, depending on who is asking it and why. But basically what that kind of question does is it implies that there's a cause to this, as opposed to it's just sort of a feature of my life. Like, I'm not trying to be out here living these quirky ways, folks. I just happen to be single. You know, there's not necessarily a cause or effect there. Um, But then you can also see it in terms of the ways that kind of norms within families are policed. So, for example, mocking of single women, the assumption that they're not as competent in the home sphere or competent with children. One of my participants in my study talked about how her her family kind of made fun of her or kind of poked fun of her for whether she even knew how to hold a baby or not. Um, But these assumptions of kind of incompetence in womanhood, incompetence, if we're talking specifically about single women, but incompetence in the home sphere, incompetence in womanhood. Um, And then also you can think about these as being kind of norms that we rehearse internally. So ideas that we hold at the personal level. So our values about singlehood, the extent to which we might buy into beliefs that um, because I am single, I am not worthy, right? So these are these three spheres, we would technically call these scripting processes, but how we are reliant on these repetitive norms and ideas in society to shape how we think about ourselves. Do you ever find that just the question, why are you single is an implied negative? Mm-hmm. Like not even just assuming that the, that there's a cause or, or a wrongness to you, but just the existence of the question itself mm-hmm. implies that you are wrong for being what you are. That's mm-hmm. what hurts me when I hear it. And also we have to like, if we're going to like kind of step back rhetorically and think about sort of who gets the power to wield that question, who's expected to answer that question, who is, where is the normative kind of site for inquiry there? It's that it's typically family members asking single women to account for themselves, right? This is not a space where single women are like, let's talk about why all of us are single, in a kind of conversational way. But when we're thinking about in the context of family, at least this has been kind of revealed by my research, or in the context of dating relationships, it's usually this kind of inquisition type space. And so that makes sense that it would feel kind of charged and loaded is because single women don't have kind of the power to wield that question in the same way. Um, And it doesn't, you know, we're automatically assumed to be at fault, you know, for our own singlehood, which kind of makes the presence of that question almost an accounting. Oh, of course. And how are you married? is unacceptable because couplehood is revered as precious, but our singlehood isn't at all. It's seen as something that's temporary. We must hate it. We must be in on the joke because we must want to end this as soon as possible. Um, I was really, in my, in my work, I've noticed that singlehood is, is kind of a cultural unifier. No matter mm-hmm. what your background is, singlehood happens to you. It's everybody. It's literally everyone. And I was listening to an episode of Therapy for Black Girls and I was nodding along the entire time. And I get emails from everybody from across the world saying that they experience some component of single shaming Mm -hmm. the same way that people living 
on the opposite side of the globe are experiencing it with friends, with family, society, culture, media, all of it. It's, this is a really loud ambulance. So yeah, it's, it's everybody. That's one of the things I love about my work is that I get to talk to everybody and we all have this unifying thing about us and it isn't wrong. It's just something that the world makes us all feel like it is. Correct. I mean, and what we're seeing in the United States specifically is just, well, I mean, probably even globally, but I've studied the U.S. so I can speak to these data better. It's just increasing numbers of single adults, period. You know, regardless of, I mean, think 30 years ago, you know, the idea of a 25-year-old unmarried woman was far less common than, you know, the experiences today. And so, absolutely. And it's it's a globally shared experience you know, we're seeing trends in marriage within the U.S. population. People are delaying marriage considerably longer, um, not actually marrying, entering cohabiting relationships and sort of reconfiguring that partnership structure. So it's becoming more optional. My issue is why do we still have structural inequities attached to single status? Who cares what relationship structure you're in? Why does it matter? Well, it matters in the U.S. because you are foreclosed from certain things if you are unmarried. <laughs> And so I understand to a certain extent why that would be stigmatized, right? You want to eschew people away from less power or you want to reinforce kind of cultural norms, but um, it just adds a kind of larger layer of complication to things. Anytime I read Bella DiPaolo's work and I just see like the list of benefits to being married that are not offered to single people. And the only difference between us is literally a marriage license. It tends to make me very upset, but um, I'm glad we're talking about it. So what do you think are the most common messages communicated to single black women and to single women? And do you feel that those messages are serving that community? Well, Mm, that's a good question. So like, what are the messages? So my, So what I got into this project to study was what I was defining in my work as Black love media. So television shows, movies, podcasts that um, advise and represent the sex dating and relationship lives of unmarried women. So you can think the way that I like the, the exemplar piece of media that I point to is Steve Harvey's Act Like a Lady, Think Like a Man and the subsequent media properties it produced. Let's not forget a sequel to that book came out two movies to that book came out. And then as a consequence of his increased fame, Steve Harvey got a talk show during a primetime slot, which featured a like a relationship advice piece. And all of that grew out of his radio drive time show. Anyway, so this kind of larger industries where, yeah, the ethos or the advice might be located in one media property, but the values attached to it are present in others. And so what do you hear in terms of those kinds of messages. I mean, well, Harvey was very well known for the 90 day rule. We got to put our, you know, bodies on hold until 90 days have passed. Like that means anything. Um, This idea that single mothers are supposed to kind of immediately show their kids to who they're dating because we want to make sure that they fit in with this man's worldview and kind of really tasking women with rehabbing or I describe it in kind of my own work. Like what did we have to heal, hide or disavow? in order to be accepted as potential partners. And so a lot of the advice is around what you need to heal and kind of 
disproportionately tasking black women with the labor of kind of emotional work that other members of our community are not? Hide what are just some things you overall need to just not show to your potential partner? And disavow what are things that you fundamentally need to rehab or reject or um, essentially uh, exclude from your life in order to create room for marital partnership. Um, and so those are some of the kind of key messages, but we can think even more at an abstract level, you know, black women like kind of women of all races in this culture are exposed to these ideas of the old maid, like that after a certain period of time, you have no value in society because you're reproductive value or your marital value has changed. Um, the idea that single women are dysfunctional, chaotic, unable to conform to the basic structures of society. I mean, there are so many. <laughs> I'm just trying to think like, what else do I want to say? That single, I mean, think about welfare queen stereotypes. My God, we have whole policies built on welfare queen stereotypes, thinking about the ways that um, kind of black women's reproduction outside of marriage is look at, looked at as not simply kind of a moral failing, which is a problematic assumption, but also like a failure of society, one that has to be heavily policed, heavily disincentivized, disin, uh, lack of support. So I think there's, um, we see a lot of messages. And I guess maybe my one kind of final point on this would be, we also see a lot of messages, as I was saying earlier, that work alongside messages about relationships. So it's not simply that, yes, single women are all these terrible things, but using that as a contrast point to how amazing being married is. Because it's so amazing, right? Nobody ever gets divorced. It's perfect. It's idyllic. You better ask all these people in COVID lockdown how great marriage is. I'm sure I've, they have comments for you about how amazing being married is during COVID lockdown. I've never been so grateful as I am to be living alone in the last year of my life. I have a question for you about um, responsibility. I find in my work that a massive amount of responsibility is placed on women uh, from a variety of different angles and, and pertaining to a variety of different areas of dating and relationships, the responsibility is placed on women to do, to be the ones searching and finding, to be the ones perfecting, to be the ones enticing. Uh, I find that an inordinate amount of responsibility is placed on women. When I look, societally speaking, I don't do research. Uh, when I look at what's coming at men, I don't see the same amount of responsibility placed on them. And, and when I discuss relationships or, or dating or singlehood or anything like that, I'm in no way asking for women and everyone who identifies as female to take a superior role in dating. I'm seeking balance that I'm never finding. Have you seen that imbalance as well, that there is just so much responsibility placed on the woman in the dating space that is not matched in the other direction? So I can speak to the kind of cultural narratives around that. Um, I don't necessarily study kind of like dyads of dating relationships, but we know from the literature, even just sort of about like responsibilities for who's responsible for providing like um, birth control, for example, in a sexual encounter that usually goes to women. Who's responsible for navigating, if we're talking about a heterosexual union, right? 
who's responsible for navigating um, kind of chores in the home or like what are we seeing in terms of inequitable kind of breakdowns of work during COVID for women? Like it all goes to women. And then so of, as you would expect, there's a lot of kind of cultural imperative for women to um, work through their shit, work on their stuff, deal with their baggage, process their weird stuff, you know, and you're right, that that work doesn't go to men. In part, it's how we conceptualize audiences for these media. So, for example, you need an audience to give a message to. So part of, like, for example, the publishing of dating advice books, I'm talking about specifically the example I'm thinking about is Tyrese and Rev Run's Manology, The Secrets of Your Man's Mind Reveals, because Tyrese has a dating advice book. But in that dating advice book, he talks about how basically books like this are not saleable to men. And so you get, you get different advice that goes to men, right? About like executive development or, um, you know, things that have to do with like money and image, at least at this period of time where this writing was happening. So this is like 2009, 2015 era. And so one of the assertions that Tyrese made in his book was that these books are not produced for male audiences. And so in this book, he basically says a lot of the things that really should be shared among men or women are going to you all because you are the ones that were reading this advice. And so part of it has to do with where the money goes and who we can market this, these ideas to. Part of that obviously has to do in the ways that we construct women and women's responsibilities in society and the kind of legacies of women's responsibilities in society, which I kind of touched on a little bit at the top of this question, which is that women are responsible for kind of managing everything in the context of partnership. So why wouldn't that start at the stage of dating, right, where you're preparing yourself emotionally for a male partner, again, in this kind of very heteronormative context, preparing yourself for uh, a male partner. This is just, you know, navigating. The word prophylactic keeps wanting to come out of my mouth, which is like very 1950. But what I'm talking about is like condoms and birth control. I don't know. Prophylactic, again, keeps coming out of my mouth. But devices to manage fertility often and sexual health often go to women. So I, I personally, based on that kind of larger trend, that's my argument, is that what we see in terms of single women being expected to do that work, A, it is real. We are targeted in different ways, partly because of how the market is conceptualized and sort of what ideas are saleable to what audiences, but then B, just sort of how norms around courtship, partnership, relationships are structured and who has the task of doing what in those relationships. Do you have an idea of courses of action or self-protective strategies that are available to women when we come across imbalances in messaging like this? That's a good question. I mean, you know, there's always the go-to answer for media scholars to questions of how you navigate kind of toxic messages in the media is always media literacy. And I think that that is such a weak answer because we're going to sit down and take a course every time we encounter messages in the media about singlehood. Like there's just not enough literacy. Yes. We can give each other kind of skills to think and deconstruct the media, but um, I think that's an insufficient answer, frankly, 
I think it's definitely one tool in a larger toolkit. So what would I say? I think that you have to just sort of be protective of ourselves. You have to curate your timeline. You got to just sort of stop watching the crap. And so what does that mean? Message media that contain a lot of uh, idealizing, heteronormative, kind of romantic ideals that advance a particular type or script of partnership. What would that mean? The genre that has the kind of most salience there would be reality dating shows. Like stop watching The Bachelor. (laughs) Stop watching The Bachelor. (laughs) So there would be, there's some certain kinds of shows you can cut, but I would also just, because again, as an effects scholar, I can't, not say that media aren't shaping our beliefs about the world, even when we're not cognizant of it, because it helps to create a worldview. One of the theories I look at in my work is cultivation theory, which posits that our beliefs about the world reflect the most recurrent messages of the media that we consume. And that this theory posits that the more media you consume, the more your beliefs about the world will look like the media you consume. And so we know that the media are biased, and paint a particular worldview of dating and relationships, one that idealizes romance, that reinforces ideological narratives of courtship, love at first sight, love conquers all, and one that does a very good job of using those narrative structures to legitimize single women. Because if you're in a love conquers all world, but conquers everything but your singlehood, lady. So what happened with you? you know? This is why I bitch into the internet all day, every day. It's just for variety. If you can hear another viewpoint, another perspective, another human being say being single isn't wrong, and here are all of the reasons why, and here are all of the different ways you can look at things that are true and always were, We just didn't hear it because all the messages we've been receiving since like from the womb about single women is that they're bad and wrong and you don't want to be that. Just for variety, there has to be more variety in this space and I don't see enough of it. And anytime I do see a a book, like a dating advice book where the target is women and the author is somebody that wants to date women, I don't feel very good. That doesn't make me, something doesn't track there for me. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I can say just sort of in my analyses of the black love genre, it's more sort of people speaking from kind of, here's an ideological construction of what a man is. Here's a complementary gender role woman that you should be using to fill that. And if you aren't able to do that, that's because there's some kind of problem with you. So. The uh, the other uh, real, really passive message that I, I wish we didn't get, but we do, it's never said directly to us, but if you just look at the uh, volume and enthusiasm of the praise exalted upon those getting engaged or getting married, the void space there 
is that that's not given to you. It's not a message that you're receiving directly. No one's going up to a single woman and saying, see, she's engaged. Why aren't you? But the amount of praise that she's being given, the amount of celebration, the extravagance of her wedding, or just the very existence of her wedding and the fact that it's something to celebrate can communicate a negative message back to single women when they are not celebrated in the same way and with the same enthusiasm. Oh, we have whole parties, weeks of parties dedicated to marriage. I mean, there's a whole kind of cultural industry around the movement of single people into marriage. There's a whole kind of economics around that as well. Do you find that the societal messages uh, and societal opinions of single Black women mirrors what you've learned about single Black women in your research, or is there a disconnect between the two? Mm. Um, I think that I was, my work is pretty much in lockstep pre-COVID. So before I got on the phone with you, I was designing another study looking at what single life looks like during COVID. And so I think that really does matter, right? Because we've seen such a reconfiguration of the home space and a reconfiguration of society that you're getting a lot more conversation about how great it is really to have no kids and be single because I don't have to deal with all those problems in my house for the next year and for the past year. Um, and so I think the messaging around single status is changing. I mean, and then also there's your podcast, there's other moments in the culture, right, where we're seeing kind of a different perception of single status that I think wasn't in operation when I collected my data. You know, I started collecting data in 2016, 2017. Um, so it's, it's we're due for an update just because society has so fundamentally changed and really turned on its head what what matters in terms of um, what we're valuing as a society. I mean, just think about it. We're in, being an unmarried individual who can work from home with no kids right now is kind of peak privilege. I don't have to, my, my income didn't change. I don't have anybody in my house. No one's taking my, uh, you know, attentions away. I have actually more productivity time on my hands because I don't have to commute. So I can just get up and do whatever I want um, in, in ways that I just really wasn't, like as long as the work's getting done and I'm in class when I'm supposed to be, really nobody is checking on me in those ways. And so that's become a new form of social privilege, one that we're starting to talk about in the culture, but one that I don't think, uh, the one that my study definitely didn't account for just because it wasn't in operation. So this pandemic is really transforming a lot of things that we are seeing in terms of unmarried life. And we just, we have to, I mean, now's the time we got to ask some questions. So I agree. I agree because the gut reaction to the pandemic was my God, single people are going to be so lonely. Like we can't date anymore. We can't connect anymore. Like we're so isolated, right? Like, and that was my reaction as well. There was a really panicky couple of months there in the beginning. I was, I was very, very afraid, but the further that it's gone on, that privilege has risen to the surface. And I realize, particularly when I, when I speak to anyone in my life who has children, how lucky I am to be in the position that I am. I liked staying home before. Like this is, I was kind of, it, it wasn't that big. Well, it was a massive disruption. This is terrifying. But in general, it wasn't that big of a disruption to my day to day. It's wild that it does have to be studied. That's, I mean, I'm looking forward to seeing that and, and seeing discussions about that. Like it's, 
we were kind of training for this in a weird way. Yeah, I mean, it's not all peachy as you kind of can personally speak to, and as all of us who are single with no kids living and are alone can speak to, right? Like, it's not, this is a very kind of subset of a subset of a subset of a population. So let me be clear there. I'm not trying to say that this is a singular experience of singlehood because obviously there's single parents and things like that. People who are not able to work in the same ways. Um, but yeah, like we're in a moment where, where you know, unmarried people are, we're finding our superpowers in ways that we weren't before. And, you know, that has growing pains because again, it is isolating to be home by yourself. That's isolating. But then you realize that everybody who is trying to date is just on the apps now. <laughs> so you just head to the apps, you know? And so the site for kind of socializing has changed. And I mean, I don't know, dating, I don't know. I don't know either. Tomorrow marks two years to the day since I deleted my dating apps and have not redownloaded them because I don't want to put myself in that space or in that culture any longer. But I've seen many people I know actually meet long-term partners in the last year. I am fascinated. I'm absolutely fascinated. First of all, happy, mazels to you, but fascinated by how, because you know what it is? There's so much negativity around. I'm never going to meet somebody. I'm never going to meet somebody. I'm never, it's never been harder to meet somebody than in the last 12 months of our lives. And I know people who are now with their person or whatever, like it's wild. It's, I like it because I think it reinforces that like, we don't have a grip on this. We don't have a handle on everything. We can't predict. We don't know. We can surmise, but they're allowing ourselves to be surprised and allowing ourselves to take in new experiences it serves single people well, in my opinion, for sure. I mean, that's one of the things that I find in my research is that being single just allows you to be responsive to your environment in ways that because you don't have to then like get on the same page with somebody necessarily. You can just sort of take executive decision, even if you have kids. Okay, yes, these are the frameworks I have to work around. However, I don't have to confer with anybody else in my house about how I want to run my house. So you can be a little lighter, a little bit more nimble, a little bit easier, able to pivot, you know, when you're unmarried, when you're single. The flexibility and freedom will always be the most valuable assets that I think we have as single people. But um, I wanted to, there's so many things I want to ask you. Okay, here's a a big one for me. Um, I heard you speak about something called a single woman action plan in an episode of therapy for black girls, I would love, this is your term. So I would first love for you to discuss what that means. Um, And second in my work, and I don't know if this is also true of yours, but I've seen a reluctance from single women to put things like single action plans in place because they don't plan to be single that long, that kind of vibe. Um, Essentially it's a fear that in, in planning they are admitting to themselves that they're somehow failing or a failure. Um, So I would like to know what you mean by single action plan and how would you suggest moving into a different mindset around sort of taking control of one's own preparedness? Yeah. That's why I like the phrase action plan, because I agree with that assessment that there's a lot of, I don't want to, but I'm not going to be and and if I start planning, does that that mean that I'm going to be this? And, there's a lot of hesitancy around that, but right now what we're, I mean, here's the bottom line is that the longer adults are waiting longer and longer to get married. 
And so you could go for your, the first decade of your career unmarried. Are we going to just wait until we're married to have a plan for retirement? Are we going to just wait till <laughs> we're, you know, till we're married until we start getting a plan for fertility? And so that was my thinking in terms of the single woman action plan was to very actively challenge the hesitancy of single women and their reluctance to plan around this and just say, there's no value judgment to being single. There's no value judgment to having life goals. There's no value judgment to having a plan. Let's just not put all of our eggs in the basket of getting married because marriages fail, partners don't come along, et cetera, et cetera. And so the single woman action plan is basically a set of goals and kind of strategic plans that I want all unmarried adults, but specifically single women to put together for themselves. And so this action plan will speak to um, a woman's maybe plans for motherhood and fertility. So are we going to be single by choice having kids? Uh, If that partner doesn't come along, maybe we want to freeze our eggs earlier so that we would want to extend our fertility uh how what are our values and feelings and fears around making decisions about maternity and motherhood in single life that might not exist if we were partnered and so part of this document is also getting us to really excavate our concerns our fears and our feelings that might keep us from making some plans around critical life decisions and so this document can be a clearinghouse for life goals This document, um, as I see it, is also a kind of a clearinghouse for um, other important documents or a way to organize other important documents. This by no means takes the place of a will. But so, for example, this document might have instructions on how to get to a will or might have instructions on, um, you know, end of life plans in lieu of a will temporarily as you're putting one together. Right. But the idea is that regardless of where you are in your life regardless of what economic position you find yourself in, you should be able to articulate what you want for yourself and figure out the barriers to achieving it and determining what the steps you will take in unmarried life to achieve that plan. That's my view, anyway. But that's what the goal of the Single Woman Action Plan is. I love nothing more than planning. So this this speaks to so many like mental checkboxes in my head. I love planning for essentially everything, but I think um the the act of planning in and of itself relieves so much stress and anxiety and worry. It's really I, this happens with with anything that we're afraid of doing, but once we do it we feel better. There's so much better to feel at the end of an action plan for a variety of eventualities. I take this to a really practical place and I have emergency plans all the time for any sort of natural disaster that could befall me wherever I happen to live. Um, because I just like packing a go bag. I find that to be very cathartic. <laughs> it just makes me feel better. Got to get ready to go in these days. You don't know what's going to happen. Oh my, I mean, it, honestly, if zombies started walking down Fulton Avenue, it would not surprise me in the least at this point. Nothing can. Um, but yeah. You know what else I haven't thought about that I think I, maybe this needs to be my 2022 goal. My 2021 goal is is hopefully to move, but I the uh, our planning for our digital presences to be uh, I don't know 
swept up after we're not here anymore. That's a, that's a real thing. Yeah. And you need to have a document laying out, for example, what all your passwords are, you know, so that people can access your stuff in your absence. So for example, if you need to turn off auto pay or somebody needs to turn off auto pay on a cell phone bill, um, that's an issue. And so that would be another useful kind of role for the single woman action plan. And again, there's end of life planning you can do around this. There's wills you can do around this. So I'm not saying that this is a legal document. Let me be very clear. But as you're highlighting, it takes the stakes out of being single, right? Because if your retirement security, your future with children, your economic stability, your ability to own a property is all dependent upon having a marital spouse. And then that person doesn't come along. We're just going to give away our whole lives. And so the plan, the, the act plans change, plans can can move around. But the goal is just for, for single folks in general, but single women to think kind of more agentically around their lives and understand that. Also, partnership can look any kind of way. What's to say you want to marry that person? So to come up with a plan for your life and for yourself an unmarried life. And here's why this matters. Because there's so much inequity in, in society that works against unmarried people, right? Like it wasn't until the 70s that single women could even apply for mortgages to own property, which has massive implications for generational wealth development. And so because there are so many inequities built into single status, some of this needs some very practical logistical planning around. Like if you're going to be single by choice, who is going to keep your children? And in an economy where we depend upon paid labor outside of the home, how will you afford that? So some of these decisions are not simply just, yes, I want to have kids, but putting in place like, okay, well, if that's the case, I need to start working now, or I need to start earning money now, or I need to start making these plans now, as opposed to maybe when you're 30 or 40 and trying to have a child for the first time, embarking on them then. And I don't see putting these things in place as admitting failure so much as, as acknowledging reality. I would, I mean, it's, I get it. I get why we would think that sort of like putting firm things in place that acknowledge our singlehood can feel negatively reinforcing because of all the societal messaging that we've received. But I'm so through with single women planning on maybes. I would much rather us plan on the definite things that we know are there, are coming, are possible. Not that partnership isn't possible, but everything that you would put in place as a single woman to take care of yourself can be adjusted later if you get married. It's like there are so many uh, almost superstition-driven actions taken in the single space that are not, they're, they're just not serving us, in my opinion. I agree. And this is not me speaking as a researcher, just more somebody who is single talking about being single. It's like, I would rather go into a relationship owning my own things, um, you know, feeling confident that I have autonomy, economic stability, and finding a partner that's kind of comparably situated than just sort of waiting to be like, oh, thank God this person's rescuing me from all of these things, which I think, you know, my inability to have kids rescuing me from, you know, my inability to have money, things like that. It's more about agency, autonomy. We have to live life for ourselves. We have to be in society for ourselves. We have to experience kind of things for ourselves. I just kind of personally get 
Oh, like I feel a little sad for anyone that's putting their life on hold for anything because this is it. We get one. Let's do it. Let's make the most out of it. We do tend to have a lot of like, like the current moment is temporary and the future goal is the permanence. And that's not like right now is permanent as well. It's goals are amazing and and it's wonderful to have them, but not living in the present fully because you think that the future goal is the real way to be. And right now isn't, is, is a misuse of energy. I think. I would personally agree with that. And I, I would also say is that, I mean, the pandemic taught us that plans for any reason and that, you know, simply having a plan doesn't ensure any particular outcome. I think more sort of the reason, again, I like the idea of action planning is because it challenges us exactly what you're talking about, Shani, to think about what are the systems of belief that we have in place about what it means to be single that keep us from planning? How do we think about single status in ways that ultimately work against us in the long run? Like, I don't think anyone's belief in the short term, like this is temporary, like anyone would stay invested in that system of belief if they knew that being invested in it in the here and now would work against them 10 years from now, you know, like, yeah, I'm 22 and I'm just single right now, but who's to say you're to be married at 32? That's the other thing. It's like, let's put a flip on it. Why are we planning for marriage? That seems kind of odd, doesn't it? Yes. The only person I have is myself, you know, really fully have. And so why would I create a life plan that's around legally attaching myself to somebody else when wouldn't it make more sense to kind of start with the foundational element of the self but again that's more sort of me thinking kind of personally but it's also just logical we've been sort of groomed against logic from day one there is just it is it is in everything it is in everything you see, everything you experience, every time you sit down with a friend, every time I sit down in a hairdresser's chair and, and I know them, the first question is, so are you seeing anybody? Like, it's just, it's everywhere. It's pervasive and it's everywhere that if you are single, you are wrong. There is something missing. It's very casual. It's very passive. It's small talk. It is small talk. And I'm, I really, I've said this before to this audience that the era of small talk is over, in my opinion, because most small talk is actually offensive. Yeah, and it's just meaningless. Yep. And like it is small. I mean, and like whatever, maybe there's value to that. I've never been one for small talk, but I hate it. It's so weird. So when are you guys gonna have a baby? Like you would say that to somebody if you bumped into them at a coffee shop, but how is that appropriate? You know what I mean? It's like, oh God. I, I'm speaking of this is a very like going back to see my parents in Fort Worth, Texas perspective, because that's the kind of thing that, that I'm used to being around. Um, but anyway, so let me see what do I want to ask you. You know what? I would like to know what you think the biggest societal misconception about single black women or single women or both happens to be. What is society getting wrong? Um, I will start with single black women. We see a slew of stereotypes about black women that are pretty much race, class, and gender images. But my work, I argue, single status plays a fundamental role in defining dysfunction there as well. So think about the welfare queen stereotype, for example. It's not simply that this woman, this stereotype is hyper-reproductive or attaching herself to the government. It's that this stereotype is also unmarried. And therefore, there's a foundational kind of flaw there that is contributing to all the subsequent dysfunction, right? 
And so the the stereotypes that we frequently talk about in academia are Patricia Hill Collins is controlling images of black women. And there's five. Um, the three that I most closely tend to in my work are the black lady, which is a class stereotype that talks about how academic achievement and professional success functions as a direct challenge to masculinity. And therefore that is why black women who are professional are seen as less desirable because they are seen and constructed in these ways that are masculine, essentially. You are hitting all of these kind of uh, social uh, benchmarks for male achievement, competing with men, again, by the logic of the stereotype, competing with men in quotes for um, a selected number of positions and that that breeds resentment, right? So that's one kind of framework that I look at of stereotype. The welfare queen would be another one, the Jezebel or the kind of, um, I guess another contemporary way of saying that would be the video house, the hypersexual woman who's, you know, needs to have her sexuality contained by marriage and sort of the sexual expression is a product of dysfunction due to her singlehood in many respects. And so those are common kind of stereotypes about black women, but I don't think we talk enough about the role that being unmarried plays into those stereotypes, right? And how being unmarried is a fundamental jumping point off point for how it's a, it's a marker of how these, these kind of stereotypes of black women are dysfunctional. Do you think, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but do you think that marriage kind of neutralizes some of the stereotype? Like it's a safe haven from certain assumed stereotypes. Like I find that it gives a bit more, um, like it, like marriage is kind of like a coat of armor over negative stereotypes. Like, oh, it's okay. Cause she's married or she's more precious. And we can't talk about her that way because she's a married woman. I think that that definitely does function in society. So there's two answers I will give to that. The first is that is from the standpoint of respectability politics, right? Which is the system of uh, values that grows out of the Black Baptist Church at the turn of the kind of emergence of the 20th century that basically grew out of this club movement of women who were assisting kind of Black transplants from the South and moving up North and respectability politics politics is the kind, grows out of this kind of code of values, norms, and expectations, right? How you are to look, how you are to act, what your roles in society would be. So I would say by the logic of respectability, yes, marriage gives you cover. But we live in a racist, sexist society that doesn't care who's married. And so regardless of how Black women might behave or might be attached in their private lives, Publicly, that does not give them cover from stereotype. And publicly, that does not give them cover from being attached to these kind of um, negative ideas about, you know, single women through these, these other stereotypes. I'll give you an example. So there's a paper in the 19, 1999, it's the old ass paper, but basically where this researcher, Kennelly, um, looked at the ways that single Black motherhood was used to stereotype all Black women in the workplace. So how the idea that a single black mother, oh, she's going to be late for work. She's got to have all this. We got to make accommodations for her because of our kids. And it's just going to be drama. It's just going to be too much work for us employers. But how that stereotype was then applied to women, regardless of their marital or maternal status. Right. Oh, she's a black woman. Therefore, she's got all these problems with kids. Therefore, she's got all these problems with family. Therefore, she's got all these. So we can't really give her this leadership position. 
or maybe we shouldn't look to this person for employment at all, or we might pass over this person for a career advancement, right? So we know that these stereotypes work to marginalize women within, uh, Black women specifically within kind of other sectors of society. Now, let's step out a second and think about women in general. Again, we're talking kind of more heteronormatively here, but thinking about women and but marriage is a heteronormative institution as it has historically been practiced. So I guess we've kind of locked in there to a little bit, to a certain extent, to it, a little bit. Anyway, I digress. Point being is that you're absolutely right that marital status does function as a cover for women in society because it becomes a shorthand for your worth, you're marriageable. Therefore, somebody sees value in you. Therefore, somebody wants to attach themselves to you. And we give married people all this cover in society. What are you like? How is it being single? Well, how's your marriage, right? There are certain questions you just can't ask married people that you can ask single people. There are certain assumptions about kind of authority. So for example, married people don't date. Y'all are married. Why would I ask a married person about dating? You're probably the person that's had the most distance from dating to now, especially some of you who've been married for a decade. Why am I looking to you for that? But the idea that because you are in marriage, you have authority over all aspects of relationship, i.e. dating as well, right? And so marriage gives a lot of cover to, and gives a lot of credibility and gives a lot of authority to adult women specifically that it really shouldn't maybe isn't the word, but that single status doesn't confer time. I think there's a respect component to it as well. I think when I'm out alone and there's somebody in the room that sees me as an opportunity for, I don't know, entertainment or conversation, if I had a ring on my finger, I think they might think differently about their actions. I think there's a protection and respect aspect to being married as well. I had a friend in law school and she, we both interned with the public defender's office in Los Angeles and her internship involved speaking directly with defendants very often. And she showed up one day with this giant rock on her hand. And I knew that she was single and I was like, what is that? And she's like, oh, I have to wear it or I get hit on during my internship by lawyers, by defendants, by everybody. And I was like, my God, a $20 fake giant rock is the protection that you need just to get basic respect in the workplace. I, I, that's one of the most shocking things that I've ever seen or heard personally uh, as it relates to being single versus being claimed. Actually, yeah, I had a participant that did the same. She wore a wedding ring just to kind of, wasn't married. She was actually married, but like hadn't talked to her husband in 19 years. We're just, um, to each their own. I don't know. I loved it. I was like, yes, forget that man. Anyway, they eventually divorced, but at the point she was telling the story, she started wearing this ring after she had not been talking to him for a while, basically to cover, keep from getting hit on and keep from getting um, harassed in the workplace. And then a kind of a counter narrative from another participant is that people at, at work functions would try and set her up. So like work would not happen, but rather the focus of, you know, a reception or a networking event would be like, well, who in there can we pa- partner you up with? Cause you're so amazing. Not this is a young professional at the beginning of her career. She does excellent work. Let me introduce you to 
the director of this organization where I think you would have a really good fit in the next stage of your career. It's who in this room can we partner you with? And so it becomes a different kind of professional opportunity and exposure and experience that people get from single status. So funny to talk about these things out loud and realize like, I don't, the, the intent of my work is not so that people who are partnered can suffer more. It's so that there can just be more balance in the way human adults are are seen and spoken about and spoken to. It's so odd to me that that a singular adult is lacking something as if it's a a key component to moving forward through life. It's it's very odd to me. The longer I am single, the longer it is so odd to me that we see human adults as unfinished. That's weird. That's weird. And anytime somebody tells me that I'm taking it too seriously or people get creative with their comments on the internet, it's I live it. And I talk to an audience who lives it every day. And the stories that we tell each other and the support we seek from each other, it's very real. And it's everybody. It's happening to everyone who is single in some capacity or another. It's just, I, I, I crave more balance in so many areas of the world we live in than, than I think I see. We are creeping towards a moment, which we haven't really seen in U.S. society, but we might get there soon, where there are more single adults than there are, in, than there are married ones. And that is new for the U.S. Obviously, if you look at age cohorts, like 20 to 25, okay, fine. Well, there's more single people in their 20s, you know, than there are typically in their 40s. Historically, in terms of the adult population, I think we're at like 49.5% of all adults around the world, right? Which is half of the U.S. population. <laughs> so this is not an atyp- This is not an abnormal or atypic experience. It's just that we've conferred certain values or expectations or norms to marriage, but then also to singlehood. And what does that have to say about like housing opportunities in this country? If we have this many, I have dreams of, of buying a big old house, like the ones in Detroit and living there with four or five other single women and just, just living, getting a huge house and like just dwelling there, like a, like a fabulous cohort of what I, how great does that sound? That's where I'm reporting live from right now. <laughs> That's got three units. I live in one of them. The downstairs I'm going to rehab and the attic I'm going to rehab. And the thought is that I would put a friend downstairs and then use the top to rent out to create extra income so that, you know, you can have and support yourself. Right. And I have a couple of other friends who are actually in the process of going in on a mortgage together. This is a woman who's got a child who's unmarried. And then one of my friends who's unmarried and doesn't have kids. And so they're going to buy a duplex together and go in on a mortgage together and do that. In this is fantastic. Yeah, you do things like that. It's just we don't think, and also thinking about infrastructure, you talk about Detroit. I mean, you can easily do that here. There's so many duplexes here. So, so, so multiplexes, you can easily do that. But we don't have an infrastructure very literally in terms of housing to accommodate, you know, multiple adults who would want to live in the same house but live independently of each other outside of the apartment building structure, which is like, significant number of units you know I'm I think I'm done with apartment life I think I've lived in it for god how long well since I left my mother's house when I was 18 (laughs) I think 
I think 20 years of apartment living, I think I'm done. I think that's on my list of goals for where and when I move is I would like to walk out my door and have my feet in grass. I think I'd really like that. We'll see. We will see. Um, It's so nice to have these conversations. It's like you exist in a world every day that's either super isolated or thinks you're super weird. So for me to have this conversation is just such a privilege and a joy. Thank you for joining me. Um, Thanks for finding me and inviting me. This is great. I had so much fun. Uh, Please tell this audience where they can connect with you and follow your work online. And I will, of course, link to both of your appearances on Therapy for Black Girls. And um, yeah, let them know, let them know how they can keep up with you. Sure. Um, My, where I keep professional is on IG, which is uh, Dr. J.D. Mormon. It's Dr. Period J.D. Mormon. So that's where I act cute. Uh, I act a fool on that Twitter. That's JD Mormon. Um, and then I actually have a website that I will be launching on the just before this episode comes out. And so your listeners can actually find me at JD, well, it's www.jdmormon.com um, for more information about my research. Um, I am also offering kind of single woman action plan strategy sessions. Kind of folks want to sign up for one or learn more information about that. Um, or just kind of talk to me. There's opportunities to kind of schedule an appointment with me um, and get some additional resources about that action planning that will be on jdmormon.com. Fantastic. I will link to everything in the show notes below. So go check out those links. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, no problem. Thank you. Thank you.